Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today, it is my unique privilege to welcome someone I have treated as my guru, someone who got me into the YPO, and a very, very dear friend from Malaysia, Rafiq Jovavoy. Rafiq, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashutosh. That's just too kind of you. <laughs> Rafiq is... Currently, the managing principal of Orkney Investments. He's the former CEO of Scotts Holdings in Singapore. As I mentioned, he and I are both members of YPO and he was responsible for getting me into YPO. So, Rafiq, what would you say are three key milestones in your life or career? Well, Ashutosh, I think I, I would say that perhaps achievements and failures mm -hmm. uh, in each of them. Um, I think the, 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 the thing that really was a huge milestone for me was when we opened our first shopping center in Singapore. Mm. And within six months, it had failed. Wow. And basically due to the first oil crisis. Mm -hmm. And it was the process of that turnaround mm. that I think in many ways shaped my business career. Mm. Uh, so I think that was a major turning point. Uh, I think the second one was, I, I guess you could say, was this sort of end result of that hmm. was the opening of the Ascot Mayfair in London, okay. uh, which everyone said could not be done within the time period or would be successful within the time period. So it was great when it did happen. Hmm. And then finally, I think the most, I would say, not the most impactful hmm. um, was a discovery of a fraud in my own company. Hmm. And the aftermath of that, okay. the attitudes of people, uh, actually, it kind of like exposes who your friends are. Correct. It also exposes people's underlying motivations. Mm. And uh, I think that the, and so that actually, I would say would, was kind of like the eclipse of other two. Amazing. Okay. Um, at the same time, a rebirth. I agree. I agree with you. So let's, let's talk of Scots and, uh, you just mentioned that one of the three milestones was opening of the Ascot in, in London, and I stayed there. You pioneered this whole concept of service partners. What yes. went into your mind when you thought of this kind of a format for accommodation? Well, actually, it, it, was, it was really a force of circumstance. Uh, Singapore was going through the first really major recession in terms of the hotel trade. We had at that time about 20 odd thousand rooms. Mm -hmm. And in one year, we would get 20, uh, another 4,000. Okay. And the economy had dropped. Mm -hmm. So occupancies were down to like 60% already. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were halfway up building this, this tower in, in Scotts Road. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty that we had was the government then said, okay, no more hotels in Singapore mm -hmm. until this crisis is over. So what do you do with a building that's eight floors up mm. and uh, originally designed as a hotel mm. and on top of a mall? Mm. And I was actually very fortunate that um, at the same time, I realized that there are certain hotels mm. were doing very well in a certain category of people. Mm. And really the thing that twigged it was that Guy La Roche uh, had been asked by the Hilton Group to create a set of rooms at the Hilton in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, and I saw the fact that, you know, 15 to 20% of the Hilton was actually filled with people who were there for over two months. Mm -hmm. 
I said, there must be an opportunity here. And that's really how the whole genesis happened. Uh, And then I was extremely lucky that I had the top guy at Singapore Airlines who created the concept of Singapore Girl. Mm -hmm. And Ian Beatty, I said, Ian, listen, I've got this idea Mm. and I have no choice. I'm going to have to do it. Mm. But how do I get this message out? And I still remember the great line that Ian came up with was a photograph of, 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 of the living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the tagline on the top mm-hmm. was the beds in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. And the tagline at the bottom was a home, not a hotel. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So that kind of like took the whole thing off. Amazing. So, you know, Rafik, as you look back and I've known you now for at least 30, 35 years since 89, when I moved to Singapore. You, we've been pioneering some amazing things, you know, Scott's Holdings, uh, Ascot, the Laupasat market in Singapore, which I remember that used to be an absolutely broken down place and you found something in it and converted it into one of the most happening food courts. Tell me about what makes or what, what inspires you to think of such incredible things. I don't know about whether they were incredible or not. Mm. I'm just very lucky. I think I meet people along the way, just like you do. And people say things and then you say, ha, I think that could be something I could do. Mm-hmm. And really, in a way, the Lao Pasat was a, was a, was a labor of love. Correct. You see, my grandfather was the first member of parliament for that area. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that market as a small boy when they used to still sell fish. Correct. Okay. And I was quite involved with a group in Singapore that uh, wrote the Singapore Heritage Report on the physical heritage of Singapore. And the end result of that was that, you know, I'd come up with a number of ideas of what we could do for Singapore in terms of rejuvenating its older areas, et cetera, et cetera. And I met Pamela Lee from the tourism board, uh, whose board I was sitting on. And she said, Rafik, you've been talking and talking. Mm. about all this. Why don't you just do something? Do something with that old market. Okay. Right? Now, at the same time, uh, because of what was happening to a number of hawkers, mm. we had something called the Sate Club, where they had like 25 or 30 Sate stallholders who were being relocated out of Beach Road. Mm. So I said, well, look, if you allow me to close the street at night mm. into a street market, I'll take on the building. Because then I found a place for all these guys to come to and their businesses will survive Mm. because it's the clustering of the sake sellers. Mm. And that then evolved. And I was then very fortunate to meet somebody who is a developer of Faneuil Hall in Boston. Mm. And he said, well, look, uh, you know, your thing is too small, but it can be done, you know. Uh, And that, that, and then, you know, the rest is history. And this, this street that you're talking about is the street that connects Robinson Road and Cecil Street. Correct. Buntat Street. Buntat. Okay. I and so then, you know, we had an, we had an, an a, a evening parade every day where the, where the hawkers would come out and set up their stalls and anybody who could do it within uh, three minutes mm-hmm. uh, got the rent free for the day. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I remember, you know, those evening, uh, you know, on, on, on that street. So, you know, before I go any further, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the Jumaboy family. I mean, you know, you just mentioned your grandfather moved. And it's when I moved to Singapore, it was one of the most, it was probably family number one. Talk to me about how your grandfather or great-grandfather reached Singapore and how the family has grown. 
Well, you know, like so many immigrants of the sort of early 1920s, 30s, the Great Recession in India, uh, you know, the depression of the 30s. Uh, but just before that, my grandfather's brother had set up a trading business. You know, being from the area of Kutch, uh, the Kutchis have always been traders, very much like the Gujaratis and, uh, and, and others. And so his brother had set up an office in Singapore. And at the age of 18, having, as he said, I graduated with a matriculation, <laughs> i.e. high school. Yeah. Uh, I, he was pulled out and asked to come to help in Singapore. Mm. And that's really how he came. But, you know, because, and he, he actually explained to me the, the story of how he could beat the British traders. And that is, he said, you see, the big bosses would come and pick up their telegrams from the trade office at 9.30 in the morning when their peon would turn up. But I would be there at the telegram office at 8.30 and I'd already read their telegrams. Okay. <laughs> and that gave me the inside edge. Amazing. 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 So, you know, let's, let's now move to a little bit on your appreciation of retail. And I know you consult in retail as well. Yes. Um, having built your own retail centers, run them, and now consulting. How has retail changed over the years? Wow, this is a, this is a, a really, a, it's really been a journey. Mm. You know, one of my partners, uh, I, I, we, we started up a firm called Cost Plus. Mm -hmm. I remember. Uh, yeah, and Cost Plus was the first ever fixed price electronic supermarket. Right. right. And that actually opened a window into how consumers think about what they buy. And then we ended up being asked by the government to compete against DFS at Changi Airport. Mm -hmm. So I, we actually ended up running the perfumes and cosmetics businesses there as well. And again, what that taught me was the value of captive customer mm -hmm. audiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, for somebody like you, Akshitosh, who's a great marketeer himself, you fully understand this. But imagine coming as an accountant into this whole thing. The idea of reaching out to people was such a, such a different thing, right? And I think the Scots experience so showed to me that actually when you market as a group and you're aligned with your customer, it changes the way you think in terms of retail. Right, your your products change, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't think that issue has changed at all. The the the, th the thing that's changed, I think, really, is the method of delivery mm. and the needs of the customer. Mm. Demographics change, people's tastes change. So I think, to me, these have been the two driving forces. And I think what has happened with electronic marketplaces. Mm. You know, when they first came, I, I recall I gave a speech in Dubai in 2002, preparing for today, actually. Uh, I said, I must go back and look at this because I'm sure you'd have asked me this question. I think it's about, at that time, in, in 2002, you're talking about three and a half percent of American consumers were actually buying through the internet. But you could see that as the internet became more ubiquitous, mm -hmm. there was going to be a trend in this direction. Okay. So you end up today with ubiquitous internet, 5G, etc., etc. And so now you've got easy access. Then when you back that up with payment systems, mm -hmm. you now have ease. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one of the things when I was doing one of my consulting assignments uh, back in 2014, 
already vendors were coming to me and saying, look, your tenants for the mall that I was consulting can actually have people dress in the clothes on screen before they buy it. Amazing. Yeah. And they were then putting up, you know, like mirrors where you could see yourself in the clothes, et cetera, et cetera, when you're in the store. Now, today, it's happening on, on the net itself, right? So, so I do think that, it, so that's delivery. But I think the other thing that's happened is that as people have become much more uh, literate electronically, yeah. there's a movement what I call omni-channel. You know, you might look at it in the shop and buy it on the internet, or you might look at it on the internet and go into the shop to take test it out. So I would say that one of the big shifts is that retail is going omni-channel. Mm -hmm. And I think that the second thing is, of course, a consequence of that is that our old methods of uh, delivery still going to work mm -hmm. in this environment. Mm -hmm. uh, now, my own view is that it will but it's got to adapt and not everybody is capable of adaption. Correct. So I think let's talk now of the next phase of your life, which is Orkney Investments. Yes. Uh, you know, you focus on strategy and implementation advisory work. Tell me about the scope of your work. Yeah, well, it's actually ranged quite dramatically. I kind of stumbled into this when, well, back in the 90s, uh, Singapore, as you know, went through the first really huge um, economic crisis. Mm. And I was brought in as one of the four private sector members uh, to form, formulate Singapore's future direction. Mm. And likewise, after this, I did that for the tourism board. I also did that for the recreation of Sentosa. Mm -hmm. So I realized then that there was a discipline to thinking strategically. Mm. And I was very, very fortunate that I had a chance to sort of see this at first hand by seeing how scenario planning worked out in a shell environment because I saw that in the economic planning committee. And I realized then that what I had been doing in business could actually be adapted with a bit more discipline. Of course, in retrospect, we all look successful, but at the time, you know, you were, we were always bumbling around, right? But I was actually then able to put some theoretical basis mm -hmm. to what had created the Ascot, what turned around the Scots Mall, et cetera, et cetera. So that has actually resulted in my being able to offer that as a solution finding thing for people who are in trouble. Mm -hmm. So I would say that most of my work, and in a way, next year is going to be my kind of environment, because it's in crisis that people start to appreciate the strategic value of, of what one does, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And how to get out of it. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of my work. I think the other part of my work is, is really in... Um, I was very fortunate that uh, uh, Monitor Deloitte took me on. I mean, the world's premier strategic uh, consulting group. Mm -hmm. And I was with them for a couple of years. And that, again, opened my horizons as to how they do it. And also opened my mind to digital formulas. Mm -hmm. So that adaptation and the ability to convert digital to real was, is a second part of what I do. I'm not a, technoct, uh, I'm not a technologist but I know where to find the, the solutions as you do, you know, so many CEOs, we don't know exactly what we have to do ourselves, but we know where to find it. Right. And then the third thing is actually in crisis negotiations. Mm. I was, I was involved, for example, in two major crises where there was a lawsuit. And as you know, I've had my own share of lawsuits, Absolutely. which then allowed me to sort of get into the mind of the lawyer. Mm. 
And in one case, I think the suit was for about 40 million US, got it settled for three. Mm-hmm. In the second case, it was 100 million and we got it settled for 39. I won't, of course, mention names, but my point is that that's another aspect of actually helping one side or the other in order to negotiate a a solution that everyone can live with. So, you know, when I was thinking about all the kind of work that you have done and your expertise in malls and retail, and given the impact that is going to be there, as you said, from next year onwards on retail and malls, what do you think the mall owners should be doing? Because, you know, they're sitting on huge assets. Very Correct. few people are going into their malls. Correct. They need to pivot. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts? Well, I think the, 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 the crux of this is going to be how do you, how do you surf the different channels? Correct. Uh, because it, essentially, what is a mall? It's a platform. Correct. So the question is, how is a platform going to be used mm. in this new environment? So it's yeah. a very different, in a, in a way, again, it goes back to what was a success factor for us in Singapore, mm. which is, you know, when I introduced percentage-based rentals, mm. it put the landlord and the tenant on the same side of the table. Mm. But implementing something like that is not easy. Mm. Uh, there has to be a great level of trust. There has to also be an, a, a, an understanding from the landlord mm. that he's not a landlord anymore. He's a business partner. Okay. Right. So I think it's a change of mindset that is the first part of it. Mm. And then, of course, for each mall, it has its own criteria. It's its own target market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I must say that looking at what I've been looking at at the moment, not every mall is salvageable. I see. You know, a lot have been there's a lot of overbuilding or what used to be the right location in the past for example, tourist-oriented downtown malls mm. may not be where the place has to be tomorrow because the tourists are not going to be flying around just to go shopping in a downtown mall. Amazing. Well said. Right? Um, but having said that, having said that, I think we can take comfort from the fact of what's happening in China. I mean, looking at what has happened, say, for example, in, in Hainan, mm. people are going back to the way they always were. Okay. Right? And the growth in, in Hainan, I mean, 67% improvement in, in, in occupancy just in this last few months. Mm. So I think that perhaps we're just overreacting, but there's no question that a lot of people are going to fall by the wayside, mm. right? And likewise, I think also for my other big love, which is hospitality. That's I think that too is a model that we'll need to adapt. Well, I hope lots of people who hear you and me chat know where to come to. So, uh, Rafiq, one question for you on YPO and then a few questions personally. Yeah. You've been a YPO member for a long time, probably 30, 35, 30 to 30 years. I've been a member for 27 years. Why did you join YPO and how, why have you given back so much? Okay. Well, I tell you why I joined initially. Initially, I joined because I heard that Rajiv Gandhi was going to give a speech in India at a YPO university. Okay. <laughs> right. And I wanted to hear him. Okay. Okay. That's but a good reason. <laughs> yeah. And, <clears throat> and the other thing that actually happened was that a, a, a shopping center, one of our tenants, uh, a great guy, uh, Henry Tay said, you know, Rafiq, you really should join us. Mm. Um, 
and and we got a problem because we we're, we're down to 15 members and you're one of the young guys who can bring your own friends into it and grow the chapter and i must say i was very warmly welcomed and i suddenly realized that i was in a group of peers that i mean i never i as it were it was not because i did business with them but because by and large we hardly did business with each other but the amount i learned and the amount of open sharing that i got i mean you and i ashutosh have been in what they call the forum i think the 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 nurturing and the care that forum members have taken towards each other it give, it makes you feel that what i have received somehow i have to give back and so consequently you know i've remained as a member um and it's friends like yourself and others who have been so helpful to my own personal development quite apart from my business development yes, there's a lot of mutuality in this whole thing yes and also there's one more thing we're we're all misfits and it was great to be discovered that there were also a lot of other misfits like myself <laughs> <laughs> that's it so i've got time for two or three questions for you personally rafiq after so much success and you've had a lot of uh, you know legal cases and stumbled and come back, come back again what does success mean to rafiq i think it is to find a way to accept people as they are and the ability to relate to people uh, regardless actually i mean i i here i go back to a guru who said to me that your enemies are there to teach you Hmm. and your friends are there to support you okay so it's the ability to say that hey listen i think i can learn from this one and i know who will support me through the journey hmm. so to me that is success okay okay good answer and again as you look back at life and as you look ahead with so many new things that you are doing where do you draw your inspiration from ah I you know I I I pondered this you you you've asked me this question before mm-hmm. and I think that what it is is that I think it's a, it's the search for relevance okay I think you ask yourself where am I most useful mm-hmm. of course you benefit yourself too uh in many ways whether it is a, what I what I think Tommy Cole one of my mentors said to me Rafik this is psychic income okay it's not physical there's mm. some part of that but there's also another side which is that you know that by doing something that is of value to somebody else you can also make yourself relevant both monetarily as well as personally so i guess in a way uh, in a roundabout way i guess that's that's the answer that i would give and my last question to you now and i come back to the pandemic mm mm-hmm. Uh, which has affected all of us around the world how are you rethinking your life in a new world order well i think one of the biggest gifts of this pandemic is to realize how lucky we are to have the ability i mean look at the environment i'm in you know lovely greenery how lucky we are to be able to appreciate the gifts of nature because you have the time to do it correct so the first thing that's happened is that i've kind of like diverted myself away from things that don't serve me. Mm. So that's really affected me. Okay. Me that way. And and to spend time on things that do interest me, 
etc i think the second thing that 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 it has done is that i think it makes one take a slightly deeper look at what your motivations are for doing something right so i think these are two things that have come out of the pandemic the other side sided it of course is this that i think that the world is going through a major crisis not just the pandemic i think the pandemic has kind of like unleashed people's true motivations a lot has come out the internet is exploding with you know stuff i mean one can't get away from trump one can't get away from boris johnson or even one's own government but what that has done is that it makes one personally i think either weaker or stronger because you can understand correct very true very true rafi thank you so much it's been such a pleasure speaking to you i wish you lots of success with everything that you do thank you so much ashutosh and likewise Thank you for listening to the brand called You video cast and podcast. A platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.